This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Busson. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss prevention and coping strategies for pet allergies with Dr. Gordon Chang. We'll find out how two people can eat healthy on $250 a week with registered dietitian Shauna Lindzen. We'll talk about the treatment of inflammatory bowel disease with Dr. Vipul Jairath. And lastly, we'll learn about AI and your diet with Professor Britt Burton-Freeman. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot. A groundbreaking study has revealed that plants can efficiently remove toxic gasoline fumes, including cancer-causing compounds such as benzene, from indoor air. The study was led by the University of Technology, Sydney, bioremediation researcher, associate professor, Fraser Torpy, in partnership with leading Australian plantscaping solutions company, Ambius. The researchers found that the Ambius small green wall containing a mix of indoor plants was highly effective at removing harmful cancer-causing pollutants with 97% of the most toxic compounds removed from the surrounding air in just eight hours. How do humans make decisions when the outcomes are uncertain? One possible way would be to calculate the expected value of each option by multiplying each possible outcome amount by its probability and then choosing the option with the highest expected value. While this strategy would maximize the payoff in expectation, this is not what people tend to do. In particular, people seem to be irrationally influenced by past outcomes of their decisions when making subsequent choices. Researchers from the University of Chukuba have developed a dynamic prospect theory, which integrates the most popular model in behavioral economics, prospect theory, and a well-established model from neuroscience, reinforcement learning theory. In doing so, they created a dynamic model that successfully explains decision-to-decision changes in the gambling behaviors of humans and monkeys. I didn't know that monkeys gambled. In particular, they found that after unexpected wins, both humans and monkeys tend to behave as if they thought they are more likely to win again. And being a poker player, I assure you that is correct. Using an artificial intelligence algorithm, researchers at MIT and McMaster University have identified a new antibiotic that can kill a type of bacteria that's responsible for many drug-resistant infections. If developed for use in patients, the drug could help combat a species of bacteria that is often found in hospitals and could lead to pneumonia, meningitis, and other serious infections. The microbe is a leading cause of infections in wounded soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan. I'll be joined by Dr. Gordon Chang in a moment, but first, a little bit of business. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian-owned. 
Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Omega Alpha's products are created by their scientific team headed by their owner, operator, and CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Dr. Chang holds a PhD in physiology and biomedical engineering from the University of Toronto. He also has two years postdoctoral experience in clinical biochemistry, looking at free radicals and antioxidants. He's published over 20 peer-reviewed articles and conference proceedings, and he's a regular on the show. Welcome back, Gordon. How are you doing? Very good, Jamie. I hope you're enjoying a nice warm weather. I am. And I've noticed that my dog, her behavior is changing, right? Like it's this season has been brutal for my allergies. And I've noticed the occasional sneeze and cough from her, which is kind of funny if you think about it, like dogs, you know, sneezing. And also she's doing that thing she does in spring where where she eats grass. So I'm hoping you can sort of sort things out for us today and and help us through it. You up for it? We can try. We can certainly try. Now, I'm going to start off by saying I wish I had the answer for all things. Okay. Sometimes it just doesn't happen. And sometimes, I I guess, with some of these things, like allergies especially, we just have to cope the best that we can with any of these things. One of the things I will always say about allergies, we know it's coming year after year after year. And the sad part about it, we know it's coming, but we don't realize it's coming until it hits us hard, right? We know it's our pets. You'll see it with some of them. They sneeze, they have runny eyes, they're itchy, etc., and they're, they're biting their, their skin, etc. And sometimes the best mode of action is to try and inhibit and prevent, right? Seasonal allergies, I would say, if you keep your pets inside as best as you can, it dampens the effect of it because most of the allergens that, that they're responding to is found in the environment outside. They get hay fever just like we do. And I use the word hay fever in inverted commas, not not that they're allergic to hay or anything like that. Yeah. Tree pollen, you know, mold in the ground, etc. Come springtime, as your dog goes out, he's eating the grass. He's also inhaling mold spores that are present in the ground, etc. Right? He's encountering all sorts of different things. Right? And you know in the springtime, everything comes to life all at the same time. So he gets hit with a, with a huge dose of allergens. With a smaller dose of allergens, he probably doesn't affect him. But it's when he gets hit with that huge dose, right? So I, I always tell people prevention is king. Prevention is key, right? But the problem with prevention is that how many of us actually wake up and roll out of bed with prevention in mind? Very few of us actually do that. I would agree. Right? Yeah. So one of the things I would suggest where the prevention game goes, always do a cleanse, right? Normally, we don't think of a cleanse for, um, for animals. We just think of it for us. But the animals also benefit from doing a cleanse, like a liver cleanse, for example, a kidney cleanse. The reason you want to do a cleanse is because one of the things that a cleanse does is that it cleans out the body of a lot of potential toxins. So it lightens the load on the organ systems, right? Mm -hmm. The analogy I'll use to put this into perspective, I suffer from seasonal allergies. But in the wintertime, I don't have allergies. 
I can go sit in a smoke-filled room back in the day when they used to allow people to smoke in a bar yep. and listen to music. I could sit there for about an hour, two hours before it's time to get out because the smoke just gets to me. During allergy season, 10, 15 minutes, I got to get out. Yep. Right? And the reason I got to get out is because I just can't handle it. I'm sneezing, coughing, itchy eyes, the whole nine yards. And the reason for that, the time difference is because in the wintertime, because I don't have allergies, the, my toxin load into, on my system is a lot lower. So I can tolerate more allergens coming at me, right? In the springtime, my body's filled up to the gills with different allergens. I'm already suffering from seasonal allergies. So that little extra pushes me over the edge, right? So it's the same with, with your pets. Right? If you give them a cleanse, what you do is lighten the toxin load. So it makes them, it allows them, I should say, to cope with the seasonal allergens that they get hit with. And when they, when they do react, it's not as bad as if they never had a cleanse. But a cleanse takes time and a cleanse takes planning, meaning that you can't start it the day off because, again, it depends on how bad the allergies are for your pets. Right. But sometimes better late than never. It also makes a huge difference to how they cope with it. Okay, so I don't know if you can answer this question or not, but like, do pet allergies manifest in the same way that the people allergies manifest? Like, I've seen my dog sneeze, but, you know, my dog will sneeze. My dog sneezes all year long, but this to me seems tied to the environment. Is is that pretty much it? It's just an an increase of of those types of symptoms, watery eyes and sneezing? They have reactions very similar to what we do, but sometimes they, they also have reactions like itchy skin. Right. Right. And that, that could be, again, due to food that they're eating. But again, sometimes people will notice it more in the spring than, say, because of the allergy season as opposed to all year round. And again, that goes back to if your system is, is tanked up with toxins, right, that little bit extra that you might get from the food might push them over the edge to exhibit allergies in their skin. Right. right? And one of the things that people can do to help with some of these things is to take things like also omega-3 oils, fish oil, mm-hmm. right? Because what fish oil does, right, it has the omega-3 fatty acids. The omega-3 fatty acids get incorporated into the cell wall of the skin, and that makes them more resistant to oxidative damage, right? And if it makes it more resistant to oxidative damage, right, you get less blistering and sores, etc. right? And another thing, you know, I, I believe in antioxidants. Right. Okay. Antioxidants are king for, for a lot of these things. So I would give them a, a wide range of different antioxidants. Things like quercetin is one of those that, that comes out all the time. Things like vitamin C, right? Mm-hmm. And also, I, and I know things like um, one of the things, too, because a lot of these allergens also affects through the gut. So if you take a lot of, if you take probiotics, give them to your dog too. The dogs will do well with probiotics. Let me ask you a question. Like mm-hmm. the, the things that you've just mentioned are supplements that we've talked about for us, right? For people right. since you've come on the show for, for years, right? Right. But I would assume because animals are much smaller than we are, at least my dog is much smaller than me. Like, is it okay to use the same product or are there specialized products for pets? Like I would preferentially like to use things that have been formulated for pets, okay. right? But in a pinch, my back to the wall, Yeah, I would use a human one, 
Okay. Okay. And the reason I like to use the ones that formulated for pets is because the dosage is adjusted for the pets and it's formulated exactly for right. pets. Right. Yeah. Right. But in all fairness, the safety margins on these things are huge. And a lot of these things are used as foods, right? So, for example, we talk about fish oils, right? Yeah. Fish oil is food, okay? It's mm-hmm. just that when we buy it in, in a liquid extract, the fish oil in a, in a thing, as opposed to eating a piece of salmon, we have a measured amount of fish oil that goes into us. But in all fairness, if you take one teaspoon versus two teaspoons, right, you're not going to have to rush to the poison center and say, oh, my dog took two teaspoons of fish oil, I need to pump the stomach, right? Mm-hmm. The, the worst that will happen to him is that he probably get diarrhea because he gets a whole bunch of oils coming into him. Got it. But there's so many different things that people can do for helping with with these allergies, getting back to the allergies, you know, things like MSM, Mm -hmm. right? You know, there's herbs that people can use, you know, things like astragalus, reishi mushrooms, right? The key with all of these things is that I, I tell people, again, one individual ingredient is not going to cover all your bases, right? So Mm -hmm. if you're going to take something to help with it, take a wide variety of things or get a product that has a wide variety of these ingredients all in one in there, it just makes your life easier. Okay, so all these nutraceuticals that we've just discussed, is there ever a concern that it's not copacetic with an animal's digestive system? Like, these are okay for us, but, like, you wouldn't want people just experimenting if if there were potential, you know, to do harm for their pets. Nobody wants to do that, right? I know normally a dog doesn't go go chew on milk thistle. And neither do people. True. Yeah. Right? But one thing I'll tell... People, everything that we take, dogs have basically evolved with us too, right? That's one. Secondly, they're mammals, right? And their basic physiology is very similar to us, okay? Now, there are a few things that dogs have a less tolerance for. And one of the classic examples is chocolate. Exactly. Okay? Now, I, I do know that people think that if I give my dog a piece of chocolate, well, here we go, run to the vet, get the stomach pump. Right, yep. but it's like it boils down to dosage. Anything yep. always boils down to dosage. If if I sit down and give him a a bar of dark chocolate, eighty percent or eighty five percent dark chocolate, and he takes a whole bar, we might have to worry a little bit. Yep. But if I give him a piece of uh, milk chocolate, yep. right, he's not going to have a major issue because a it's a small amount. B, the milk chocolate is diluted, so the amount of actually um, cocoa in there or, or the, the xanthines that are toxic to them is very low. Right. right. And the nice thing about a lot of ingredients, if you take something that's formulated, that's a lot of the, you, you get a lot of different things that work on different pathways, but you don't get it in a high enough dose to make it a toxic. So the safety margins, I, I always say, is very high for any of these herbal products. And last but not least, yep. you know, they're blessed by Health Canada now. And I do know from experience having to deal with Health Canada, anything that even smells of being toxic, Health Canada was not going to bless it. Okay. So you talked about a preventative strategy. How far in advance do we need to get our pets I on this would, program? Right? I would normally start them off about a month before the season starts. Okay. Okay. But if the season's already started and you haven't done it, start doing it now. Okay. Later is better than never. Okay. 
right? And then one of the things I'll say is that once you get into the habit of doing it, what you'll find is that your clock automatically sets, right? Yep. Now, in all fairness, I say a month, but sometimes it's very difficult to time it properly. So if you start off, say, six weeks instead of a month, it is not the end of the world, you know? Like, I don't want anybody saying, well, Dr. Chang says one month, but we did it six weeks ago. You know, is the effects going to be still around? Yes, the effects are still there. It's going to last, right? So even right now, I would suggest, you know, you go out and you, you get some quercetin if your animal is um, showing allergic reactions. Get some things uh, like the fish oil to incorporate that into their diet. Things like stinging nettle, right? I didn't talk about that. But there's a whole bunch of different things that people can use to help with that. Right. But the key, I'll tell you, is prevention. Prevention is king. In your experience, how comfortable are veterinarians in prescribing or assisting with the dosages for for our pets if we're going to go down this route? Now, veterinarians, unfortunately, the vast majority of them, when they're trained in our veterinary schools, do not know anything or don't do anything with supplements. Okay, mm-hmm. or even with any herbs or anything like that, right? There is a new bunch of veterinarians who have been trained by other veterinarians who, are, who have been doing this. They're coming out into this and getting getting more comfortable with it. Like, like I jokingly said, 20 years ago, if I had said to any veterinarian, you know, glucosamine is good for joints, yeah, okay, they would poo-poo me and they laugh me out of town, right? But yeah. today. Every veterinarian that I know of will use glucosamine for joints. Okay. For arthritic joints. So, I mean, it's a, a matter of experience. It's, it's a matter of their comfort level, right? And, and in all fairness, as I said, a lot of these products that, that I talk about, they're very, very, very safe. The safety margins are huge. Right. Now, these are the ones that everyday use. Now, I can't, I'm not going to say that, you know, sometimes people find things out of, out of the blue and they start recommending it and the first thing he says okay how long has this stuff been around right those I would be a little bit more careful about understood thank you so much for coming on the show today well thank you for having me on board again that was Dr. Gordon Chang we have to take a short break but when we return we'll discuss eating healthy on a budget on the tonic Lumia is a premier eye surgery center that offers a full range of vision correction options with the most cutting-edge technology in elective eye procedures like LAL, a revolutionary adjustable cataract procedure. Co-founded by two of the top surgeons in Canada, Lumia is a team of ophthalmologists, optometrists, and eye care professionals dedicated to delivering a best-in-class patient experience that provides better vision without the use of glasses or contact lenses. For more information, visit www. If you're looking for premium natural products, choose New Roots Herbal, proudly Canadian and family-owned for over 35 years. What really sets them apart is their dedication to quality. They source only the highest quality ingredients and test each one in a state-of-the-art ISO-accredited lab. You get the purity and potency you expect. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. To learn more or find a store near you, Visit NewRootsHerbal.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. 
Shauna Lindzen is a dietitian and nutritionist. Uh, she's a program developer and nutrition leader at Wellspring Cancer Support Network and enjoys seeing clients virtually and doing corporate wellness lectures. She runs practical cooking demonstrations that combine scientific knowledge with culinary education. Her demonstrations are unique, informative, delicious, and a lot of fun. And you can find a list of her nutrition classes and recipes at shaunalinzen.com. Welcome back to the show, my friend. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Jamie. How are you? I'm out of pocket. So, because I go shopping, I'm, I'm, you know this, right? Because we see each other shopping all the time. I am the designated shopper for the family. And uh, we've been blowing through money just getting our food the last little while. I think everybody's feeling it. Food inflation is here. And I thought it would be interesting to discuss sort of strategizing to make sure that you're eating healthy if you're on a budget. Okay. Yes. And it, it is stressful, isn't it? Like when you look at the food prices and you remember what they were last year right. and you start comparing in your head and then you look at your total spend on your grocery bill and it's through the roof. Well, I'm not going to stop eating, but I have to tell you, I have made decisions not to buy certain things because I think they've been inflated so much that I, I they've been inflated out of my budget. And I am solidly, I would say... Upper middle class or lower wealthy class? And if I'm making those decisions, then everybody is. Mm-hmm, exactly. And I feel the same way. I run cooking demos, so I buy food for my profession. I cook for a living, and I sometimes won't recipe create according to cauliflower prices or romaine lettuce prices. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk about where to start. To my mind, you tell me what you would do, but if I were making sure that I was eating healthy on a budget, and I'm I'm going to pick an arbitrary budget of $250 per week for a family of two, okay? Okay. So everybody can sort of multiply if they have more people or divide if they have less. I would start with the proteins because what I've noticed is across the board, they're up 30%, and protein is super important. You need to have protein for sure. Well, it's interesting. Like when we look at the plate of what our plate should look like, we typically say that quarter of the plate should be protein, right? right? So we're not obviously, as you say, going to cut out the protein, but we can buy it responsibly. Right. So what I would suggest is to increase the plant-based protein, like beans, lentils, that type of thing. Or if you're not into that, Eggs are typically an economical source of protein. You know, I've been getting uh, these eggs, which they were five ninety nine a dozen. Now they're up to seven ninety nine a dozen, eight. Yeah. You know, like even the eggs have inflated. Now, obviously, a few dollars isn't going to stop me from getting eggs, but it adds up, right? If I, if, yeah. ev- if everything is 30% more, well, then you're paying 30% more, right? A good strategy with eggs is to buy the 18-pack or the 24-pack Okay. If, if you know that you're going through them because they typically are a few dollars less. And what I do is I try a bunch of different eggs, and I like to buy an egg with a dark yellow, yep. So, just because I know they're a little healthier. So I try a few eggs, look at the dark yellow, and then buy them in bulk, like 18 to 24, because eggs have a long expiry date. So you can get those like once every two weeks or three weeks, yep. and you're fine. So it's we- like buying them in bulk. Would you start with protein for your plan or would you start Absolutely. Somewhere? It's funny you say that because in my mind, the first thing that screams expensive 
are the proteins. And I would start with protein and try to like inject more of the plant-based protein into there. The other thing I would do, if you are a fish eater, a meat eater, I would buy the protein and freeze it and buy it in bulk. For instance, Costco or the big bulk stores always have, they have the sales on like fish or meat. And the price is... If you buy it in bulk, it's sometimes half the price. I'm a big believer in that, uh, and I'm there once every couple of weeks, and I mm-hmm. can tell you that the meat and dairy prices are significantly lower than the regular stores, like significantly. Significantly. Like, I would guess almost just about half. Like, that's because I shop a lot, too, especially cheese. Yep. And did you know that you can freeze cheese? I do, but I don't. In other words, in other words, I know you can, but I choose not to. My very first job was at a cheese shop, and oh. I'm, I'm a bit of a cheese snob, so I would never freeze cheese, but I know you can. So I'm a little jealous of that. Yeah, you should be. All yeah. right. So, uh, what about setting habits? Does that make a Does that make a difference when you're on a budget? Most definitely. So, I would say the first habit you should do is have a well-stocked pantry and shop your pantry before you go to the store because yeah. you won't, you know, you won't have doubles when you come home. Yeah. There's, there's less wastage if you're doing that. Right? A lot less. And the other thing, um, habitual, if you want to talk about habits is if you know, you know, check your personal calendars, see if you're, you know, in a seven day week, how many days you actually are going to be eating at home with, if you're a family of two, for instance, we were talking yeah. about that. And then you can kind of like set your week and know how much you should get, especially with the protein. Another really important thing, and we already talked about protein, if we talk about the other groups like vegetables, the grains, the fat and the flavors, if you have vegetables on hand, like things like onions, potatoes, carrots, those are, you could buy those in bulk, they last a while, they're lower in cost. So just be kind of cognizant of having the basics on board. Things with, when we talk about grains, rice, pasta, bread, oats, barley, cereals, that type of thing. It's funny. I do a shopping list every week, which I get made fun of uh, for doing. I'm proud of you. Good for Uh, you. But you know what the starting point is? I actually write out the days and determine which family members are going to be home for dinner those days because that edifies Exactly. And we and to the point, like it drives Naomi crazy because she thinks I'm an over planner. But we actually <laughs> plan every single dinner out okay, on the A day plus that- for you. A plus for you. And the reason why I, I'm giving you an A plus there is I know that you're you're the type of person that doesn't follow recipes. Right. So you make sure there's two type of types of people, the ones who don't follow recipes, the ones who do follow recipes. So yep. you're the type of person that needs to stock your pantry yep. in, in a way that you can just cook from your pantry. I bet you don't have a lot of food waste. Uh, we actually don't. And the other thing is I find with fruits and vegetables, the place that you and I shop at, which is a sponsor of the magazine, which is Lady York, uh, Mm -hmm. they will frequently have like amazing sales on fruits and vegetables. So I kind of leave that a little bit open. Like we'll say, okay, we need a side dish. We need a side vegetable Mm -hmm. for Wednesday night's dinner. I'll see what's on sale because it's, you know, it's typically it's, it's a harvest vegetable that's come in 
exactly. And you can do really well that way. And, and you know, to your point of like cauliflower ping ponging between four to eight dollars for per head, you know, why not save four dollars? Exactly. And another tip is that, like at Lady York, for instance, they'll have like the cut up vegetables. Like any store that cuts up the vegetables, they do put a a charge on that for labor. So especially with something like squash, which isn't the most expensive vegetable or a fruit like watermelon, it's good to buy that in a large piece and chop it yourself. You save probably 40% of the cost by doing it on your own. Pomegranate is always an example of that where it's double, right? (laughs) And I actually, I got so incensed. I was at another store, which may begin with a P that is very expensive. And (laughs) literally it was $15 No way. for pomegranate seeds. Jamie? Yeah. And and that was the line. It was was a line too far for me to cross. I have never bought a pomegranate that has been pre-done. I literally just in my 52 years of living have not bought a pomegranate that's been done by someone else, cut open and seeded. So I agree. A pomegranate should be $5.99, not $15.99. And and, and that's exactly what I paid. But I have to tell you, like seeding a pomegranate is is like a bloody mess, but whatever. But it's therapeutic. It really is. Or it stains everything you're wearing. Yeah, um, it's dangerous. It right. is. It is. It's. It's. You know. You have to. You have to go in with your head screwed on properly. <laughs> All right. So I have time for one last question, and that is: Is it possible to to eat out once in a while if you're on that budget? Definitely, because if you're a foodie like you and me, yep. you you've saved money in the long term, right? Yep. So in the short term, go enjoy a nice meal and. I always say, like, go to an Italian restaurant where you can order pizza, you can order pasta, and make it into a second meal and take home the leftovers, and Uh, you're saving right there. Canadian portions aren't like American portions. I think the Americans are, like, experts at giving you so much food that you absolutely are taking it home, but I hear you. We've taken to, like, going to restaurants that are vegetable forward and then sharing a protein. And, you know, maybe it's because I'm older and I just don't eat as much anymore. But, Mm -hmm. you know, you can get that expensive. You can get the lamb chops. You can get the steak. You can get the whole fish and share it and then just, you know, maybe have a bunch of vegetables with it and still go to a great restaurant. Love that. And two other tips are don't order alcohol at that point because that, you know, raises the cost um, exponentially. And the other thing is instead of ordering an appetizer, just order a main course and order the more expensive one like a lamb chop. Exactly. You got it. All right. Well, uh, thank you for coming on the show today. What do you want to talk about next time you're on? Let's talk about whole foods versus ultra processed foods. Okay. Sounds like a plan. That was Shauna Lindzen. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss IBD on the tonic. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy Program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. I'd like to give a shout-out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian-owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. 
formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Vipul Jairath is a professor of medicine and chair in IBD clinical research at Western University. He recently authored a report which shows early interventions to patient care will improve outcomes and save our healthcare systems millions. Welcome to the show, doctor. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Jamie, and thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. So for those who don't know, IBD stands for inflammatory bowel disease. What is that? That's right, Jamie. So that's a key question. So inflammatory bowel disease really encompasses two different types of conditions predominantly. One is called ulcerative colitis and the other one is called Crohn's disease. And what these are are chronic immune diseases um, where our immune system essentially attacks the gut. Um, And we're not entirely sure why. Maybe we can talk about that further. But um, the differences between the two are this, that with ulcerative colitis, it really just affects the large bowel, the colon, whereas in Crohn's disease, inflammation can affect anything. It can start in the mouth and affect all of the, all of the bowel, both the small bowel and the large bowel. And these, these conditions typically present with similar symptoms. These tend to be things like abdominal pain or a change in your bowel habit or diarrhea or bleeding, weight loss. And that, those are often some of the cardinal symptoms to start with. They can also affect other parts of the body. So whilst they usually affect the gut, and that's where they start, um, the inflammation can attack other parts of the body, such as the joints. And many patients will also have problems with their joints or skin, which come along with these conditions. I had a family member who actually had ulcerative colitis. And when it comes to the colon, my understanding is it also makes you more susceptible, potentially, to colon cancer. Is that right? That's right. There is a slightly higher risk, but I think it's important to be clear that that risk isn't as high as it was once thought to be. So many, many years ago, and I'm going back sort of 30 odd years ago, it was thought that the risk yeah. of developing bowel cancer in persons who have colitis or Crohn's disease was much higher than the general population. Most of the studies today actually show that the risk is only slightly higher. So for example, all of us have a risk of developing colon cancer, whether yep. you have colitis or not. If you have ulcerative colitis, your lifetime risk of colon cancer is about twice the chance of someone who doesn't have ulcerative colitis. So it's definitely higher, but certainly nowhere near as high as what it was once thought to be. And we think the main reason for that is we have excellent treatments today. We have treatments that if you start them early on, they can... Um, get you into remission, get rid of inflammation in the bowel. And once you get rid of inflammation in the bowel, your chance of developing colon cancer is very low. So adequate disease control is really important in that sense. I understand that IBD can be challenging to diagnose. My experience with it is with a parent who had it, as you said, like 30 years ago. What's the process now for testing? Yeah, I think you make an excellent point as to you know delays in diagnosis. So what One of the challenges that we have is that there can be delays to diagnosis. And on an average, people can have symptoms for a year or more, sometimes longer than that, before they actually get the diagnosis. And that's because some of the symptoms can be quite nonspecific to start with. What I mean by that is some of the symptoms can be sort of generalized, vague abdominal pain that you get 
now and again or slight change in your bowel habit. And, you know, we typically kind of put these things down to something that we ate or, you know, you may have had a bug um, and, and your bowels haven't quite settled back to normal. But it's when those symptoms persist um, that they, um, you know, attention is raised and care must be sought. Now, clearly, if you have symptoms such as bleeding from the, the stools, those are red flag symptoms, unexplained weight loss bleeding, you know, you have to seek care in those situations. Um, in terms of testing, you know, how do you get a diagnosis of ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease? Well, you typically would, you know, you see your doctor in this scenario, you've got classical symptoms, you'd have some blood tests and maybe some uh, raised inflammatory markers in the bloodstream. Really, the gold standard test is, is what we call a colonoscopy, and this is where a flexible camera um, under anesthesia is inserted into the, into the large bowel, the colon, uh, and the camera goes all the way around the large bowel, gets into the end of the small bowel, and you can directly visualize the bowel. So that test is really the gold standard. It looks like Crohn's or colitis. Little tissue samples are taken to look under the microscope. That then really hinges the diagnosis. Some people will also have scans of the body, particularly in um, Crohn's disease, and they can be things like CT scans or MR scans, which can take a picture of the whole of the bowel. Because remember, the, the colonoscopy only examines the large bowel predominantly. But sometimes Crohn's disease can affect um, the small bowel as well, and often scans can help in that scenario. So really, the diagnosis is symptoms often raised inflammatory markers, not always, but the gold standard is that colonoscopy test with tissue samples to get the diagnosis. So let's jump ahead to the report that you just authored. And what, for our listeners, what are the top three takeaways or learnings from the report? Yeah, so this report was really commissioned by The Economist Impact, and it was really to try and understand, you know, what the burden of inflammatory bowel disease is today and how people access care, how they're treated, and what the unmet needs are, really. Um, and I think there's a number of key takeaways. So if we think of sort of three key takeaways, I think the first one is that there is really, the first one is that there, there's an increasing um, number of people, let's just talk about Canada, living with Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Currently, we have over 300,000 people in the country, about 0.8% of the population suffering with either of the two forms of IBD. And it's, it's increasing. We think by 2035, about 1% of our population will have this. So um, this is a condition that continues to rise here. With that, the first most important thing is that care needs to improve. We need to have better, more streamlined pathways of care. And what I mean by that is that uh, people suffering with these conditions should be able to access specialists early on around the diagnosis and they should be able to access good therapies. So we know there are lots of good treatments out there, but often there is a delay to initiating those treatments. So that's really important because earlier access to treatment can prevent complications. Um, I think within that kind of pathway, we need not just specialists, but we also need specialist nurses <clears throat> because we know that they can prevent um, be an access point for patients, they can prevent hospitalizations, they can provide lots of education. And there are many other allied healthcare professionals who are key to add to this. So dietitians are really important. And often uh, mental healthcare professionals, because some of these conditions can have uh, a major impact on the quality of life and, and well-being in general. So the first takeaway is better care pathways. I think one of the second uh, takeaways is really how we better engage technology 
um, within our healthcare systems. And that, that can be both providing information to patients with inflammatory bowel disease so they have the right um, disease awareness, educational materials, but also ways of, of monitoring patients remotely. So, for example, telehealth, um, you know, we, uh, patients can access their healthcare professionals perhaps easier through those means. And if they're having a flare or worsening of the condition, they can access healthcare professionals earlier on and initiate therapy that way. And I think the third key takeaway is more investment in research in this area. And one of the key things is that you know, we, we have a number of good treatments today. And some of these are, are very costly treatments that take years to develop, but they've been life-changing treatments. We don't really know which patient will respond to which therapy, and that remains a problem. So often it's, it's trial and error. You know, we'll try this treatment and see if it works for you, and there's about a 50 percent chance that it will get you into remission or not. And if it doesn't work, we try another therapy. Really, the holy grail would be for the individual patient who presents with this condition. Um, you know, we could do a test or a blood test or a tissue sample and say. Based upon this, we know that you will respond to therapy A, B, or C and really personalized treatments. And we're quite some way off that in IBD. We see things like that in, in conditions such as cancer, but these immune conditions are really quite complicated and we're quite some way off that. So I think that would be the other key area and the key takeaway from this report. We have time for one last question, and that is uh, my understanding is that Canadians 65 and older are the fastest growing age group impacted by IBD. Why do you think that is? Yeah, it's a great question. I think there's a few reasons. You know, the first is we've known for a very long time that if you look at the natural history, inflammatory bowel disease tends to present in two different groups predominantly. So it presents in younger patients in teens and 20s for the first time, and then again in people in their 50s and 60s, and that comes from some of the older studies. Um, I think the second thing is that we, people are living longer. We, we, we have an aging population. The proportion of patients over the age of 65 um, make up a very, you know, an increasingly larger proportion of our population overall. So people are living longer, so we're getting more diagnosed at that age. And I think the third thing is that essentially people with, with inflammatory bowel disease also live longer. You know, thankfully, um, this isn't a condition that leads to premature um, death like other major conditions such as you know, heart disease might do. So essentially we're seeing a combination of all of those things and seeing more diagnoses in um, people over the age of 65 and beyond. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Jamie. It was a pleasure to be with you and your listeners today. That was Dr. Vipul Jayarath. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll learn about AI and your diet on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. 
Lumia is a premier eye surgery center that offers a full range of vision correction options with the most cutting-edge technology and elective eye procedures like LAL, a revolutionary adjustable cataract procedure. Co-founded by two of the top surgeons in Canada, Lumia is a team of ophthalmologists, optometrists, and eye care professionals dedicated to delivering a best-in-class patient experience that provides better vision without the use of glasses or contact lenses. For more information, visit www.lamia.io. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Brett Burton Freeman is a professor and the chair of the Department of Food Science and Nutrition at the Illinois Institute of Technology and director of the Center for Nutrition Research at the Institute for Food Safety and Public Health, a one-of-a-kind applied food science research consortium comprising Illinois Tech, the FDA, and industry partners. Her research interests include cardiometabolic risk and obesity promoted by modern-day eating patterns and protected by plant foods delivering select bioactive phytochemical components such as flavonoids, fibers, and fats. Burton Freeman received her doctorate from the University of California, Davis, in 1995. Welcome to the show, Professor. How are you? Very good. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So what is the Nutrition for Precision Health Study, and why is it important for the field of nutrition? Well, thank you for asking. The Nutrition for Precision Health Study is um, part of a much larger study funded by the National Institute of Health in the United States. It falls under the All of Us Initiative, which is to study a million people. And of those million people, we are going to study 10,000 people that have been genetically typed, so genotyped, but also have provided medical records. So when we do our study with Nutrition for Precision Health, we'll be able to have a general background on people, but then study them from a nutritional standpoint. And the idea here is that we will have an ability to prescribe diets that are specific to people's real requirements based on their genotype, but also how they respond to different foods and food components. It's going beyond the one-size-fits-all and really gets to the more personalized, customized dietary programs um, that will promote health. And it's important to nutrition because we've been in this field thinking that, you know, certain diets will work for everybody, but they really don't. And so this will really, you know, in fact, drill down so that people can have a diet that's right for them. So you say you're looking at 10,000 people out of a million The 10,000, what's special about them? Do they have a particular BMI or is it a cross-section of people? Like, why those 10,000? Yeah, great question. Well, there are some other scientists and mathematicians that are part of our consortium that have determined that 10,000 of the million will, will do the job for feeding the algorithms with the data that we're going to collect. But to your point, do they need to have a certain BMI? Do they need to be a certain age, race, ethnicity? All of it. We want people that are as diverse as possible because what we're studying is human variability. And so the more variability that we can characterize, the better our algorithms will be for determining what diet fits each person's genotype, phenotype, etc. So the sexy part of this research is that you're going to be using AI and everybody's talking about AI. How is it going to be used specifically in this study? 
AI is, you know, certainly the cutting edge, you know, computational technology these days that indeed everybody's talking about. And AI requires data. And so what we're going to be doing is collecting a tremendous amount of data. And what do I mean by data? We're going to be collecting information from people's blood that we sample. So we'll be looking at clinical indicators like glucose, insulin, triglycerides, things that people are quite familiar with when they go to the doctor. But we'll also be able to interrogate to a much deeper level using some sophisticated technologies that will give us data about how our cells respond, so molecular features. We'll also interrogate urine. So we'll have urine samples that will tell us even more about the components that circulate and then get excreted from their body. Many people think about the gut microbiome, another field that's just, you know, been booming over the last decade. And so we'll be taking stool samples for that as well and studying the characteristics of the gut microbiome. So that's just an example of the sort of data that will feed computers and models that will set us up for this artificial intelligence modeling. We'll also be gathering data for, you know, where do people live? You know, what air do they breathe? We'll be looking at psychological factors. So all of this will feed these models. And so it's kind of a combination of machine learning is what they call it, right? Yep. As well as the artificial intelligence. And probably simply put, it's taking data and these supercomputers can you know, with the right techniques that come from mathematicians and computer scientists, can spit out information in clusters to help understand what sort of data go together and predict responses based on the information that's been fed. So we have some really amazing partners that are part of the consortium that will take this data and do that sort of modeling for us. Okay, so but underlying this study is the notion that diet and nutrition should be more personalized. So Mm -hmm. working from that thesis, how do you see that a personalized diet would impact food, nutrition, and wellness? Like what what sort of results could, could we expect? You know, the idea is to take the trial and error out of it so that, you know, if you think about going to your doctor, maybe you're, you're, you go in there and you learn that you have prediabetes right. or maybe you learn that you have prehypertension. So you don't need medication yet, but you've definitely been flagged, right? Your physician is saying, you know, we really need to make some changes and, you know, this is what I'd like you to try. So rather than, here's what I'd like you to try, let's see if it works, the prescription will be more specific to what your needs are. So your physician may be equipped with a tool, and maybe the tool is a a new assay, right? So you take a blood sample, they can do some analysis on it, they plug it into a computer and they say, you know what, this is the diet that would work best for you. And then they give you that diet. You know, maybe it's a low-carbohydrate high healthy fat, maybe it's the Mediterranean style, who knows, right? So it's what sort of foods and dietary patterns would work for somebody that gives a blood sample that spits out a result that says, this is the best diet for you. It may be that it has to do with a a challenge. Maybe it's that, because one of the features that we're going to have in our study is that it's not going to be just a fasting blood sample like we do today in many doctor's offices, but instead, maybe we'll have you drink something. And 
in two hours we'll take a blood sample or a urine sample. And based on the analysis of those biological samples, we'll be able to feed it into the computer algorithm and it will tell us this would be the best diet for, you know, person X. So that's the idea. It would be more specific for that person based on information that the computer's getting about that person, but with a lot more detail. So where do you see the impact coming for such issues as, you know, the endemic of obesity, uh, high blood pressure and, and diabetes? Where do you think this is going? Excellent question. You know, at the end of all this, one would hope that obesity be ameliorated, that blood pressure regulation would be in control for people. We would, you know, not be seeing the diabetes that we see today. I mean, we're really aiming for a healthy, productive, high quality of life, you know, public, right? We want all of our communities to be living at their optimum. This is the beginning, really. This sort of research um, has been long in coming. We've finally, I guess, come to the point where the technology is here for us to start doing research in this capacity. And I don't think that this is going to be the last study. It's really the beginning. And I think there's a, you know, going to be a lot more to do, but it's certainly the launch point. We're going to learn a lot from this. We're going to get started in this personalized nutrition for public health. And I think it's going to make it a, you know, it's going to be a turning point in how we do medicine and how we do nutrition therapy. Do you see the study being used for public policy purposes? Like you're talking about it in terms of creating tools for people who, for example, have high blood pressure or diabetes. But could you see the study being used to help motivate changes in the food industry, for example, and the overprocessing of foods or food deserts or getting people to, you know, tax incentives for more exercise or things like that? Do you see it being used that way? that it's going to motivate individuals and with that motivation will put pressure on the food industry to deliver, you know, certain types of foods. I mean, we see it today. So, you know, yeah, I, I think that it will create demand in areas that maybe we haven't seen it so forcefully in the past. Although, you know, I think there's been a lot of changes in the food industry, you know, in the last decade. And so will we see it in other sectors, you know, as you mentioned, um, as it relates to exercise or physical activity? Sure. I absolutely think it will. We have time for one last quick question, and that is what excites you most about the study? What are you looking forward to finding out? Wow. Um, <laughs> that's a loaded question. It is. There are so, <laughs> so many exciting things about this research. Um, it's never been done before at this magnitude. Many of the researchers involved do this sort of research or, or parts of the research, but much small scale. So having it at the scale that we're able to study and being um, part of the All of Us initiative as well, so being under that umbrella of a million people, I mean, it's just a bit mind-blowing to think of what we're going to learn at the end of all this. So I guess I don't have a very specific answer. I think that there's so much to learn that it all excites me and really thrilled to be part of the consortium, part of the research program. Well, we'll have to have you back when the results come in. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Gordon Chang, Shauna Lindzen, Dr. Vipul Jairath, and Britton Freeman. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. 
For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic Magazine, which is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.